If you have a Bible with you today, please open it to Romans chapter 2. Uh, we will soon be reading verses 6 through 16 of that chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can likely find a Bible in the seats in front of you. And on that black ESV Bible, you can find Romans chapter 2 on page 940. Romans is typically known as one of the most encouraging and uplifting books in all of Scripture and especially of the New Testament. There are few passages that can rival the theological richness and blessing of chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. There's few passages in Scripture that are more helpful in pursuing righteousness than Romans chapter 6. There's few passages that are more encouraging when we suffer than Romans chapter 8. These are the passages that people think of when they think of the book of Romans. Now, these are not the passages that we are in currently. If those passages are light, then we are in the dark. Probably the darkest portion of the book of Romans. We've been here for several weeks. These portions of Scripture, as we sink into them and, and continue to speak on them and take our time to go through them, can feel merciless, tiring, and draining. They are, as the metaphor has already been said, dark. It's often said that it is always darkest before the dawn, but truth be told, we're at like 3 a.m. and there's a couple more hours to go before the dawn's going to come. We've got another couple of weeks talking about our sinfulness, crescendoing in chapter 3. Yet all the same, the feeling the depth of our dark is incredibly good for us. Nothing makes the light brighter than knowing truly what it means to exist in the dark. To feel, to see, to know the true glory of Christ, the true depth of our depravity must be felt. And so today we come to again speak of our depravity, speak of our judgment, and speak of God's judgment over us. What does this judgment mean for Christians? What does it mean for Jewish people? What does it mean for Gentiles? Let us find out as we read the word of God from Romans chapter 2 beginning in verse 6. There Paul writes, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the inerrant, infallible, and perfect word of our God. As we begin to look at this passage, I would first like to speak to you of God's judgment and our works. God's judgment and our works. Paul begins in verse 6 with 
what we would understand to be a very Jewish thought of how God judges. He judges to each according to his works. This is taken almost verbatim from two passages in the Old Testament, Psalm 62, 12, where the psalmist writes, To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Proverbs 24, 12 says something of the same. So this is more or less a general principle of how God judges than it is something that's limited to a specific subset of people or a subset of works. And while many of us would say, well, of course, God judges according to our works. How else would he, he judge? We need to understand that that judgment here is not just in the negative. For many, when we hear that God judges according to our works, we, we might supplant that with God condemns according to our works and have it be rendered wholly negative. But it's clear, according to the passage, that that's not always the case. It's not just negative, but it's also positive. A good way to put this would be to talk about God's recompense. That can be both positive and rewarding and negative and penalizing. First, Paul highlights it's for those who do good. That is, who by patiently doing good, seek glory and honor and immortality. Glory and honor and immortality must generally be directed toward God. Paul, who has written earlier about us rejecting the honor and the glory of God for for creatures instead of honoring and glorifying the Creator, could not possibly here be talking about men and women being rewarded by God for seeking their own glory. Rather, it must be that they seek the glory and the honor of God and even the immortality that He Himself has. God then pays back rightly for what they have pursued. Since they pursue God, they get eternal life. They seek God, so they share in His life. They seek God's honor, so they get that honor forever. They seek life, so God rewards them with it. The same is also true, however, of those who do evil, in verse 8, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but unrighteousness, they also get paid back wrath and fury. The summary is that those who are self-seeking do not obey the truth. They live and they walk in unrighteousness, as we've already seen in other places in Scripture. It's important for us to think through what Paul is saying here. Most of us believe that we hold to the truth and we are truly seeking it, right? So we would hold up Scripture and we would say, this is true. The vast majority of people who are here would believe that it's true. And we would hold it up and we would say that this is true and we would seek after it. It is important then to know precisely, I think, what Paul has in mind here. J.D. Dunn is very helpful when he says this. The governing and motivating end of these such people is directed to their own advantage. Paul is not here thinking of a life of flagrant falsehood and gross injustice, but of the self-seeking, of the self-consciously righteous, those whose concern is so much for their own moral standing and purity, focused so much on their own salvation that they can actually stifle truth and love in the process. So many of us are accustomed to thinking of truth simply as some sort of propositional logic, that we can look at something that someone says or someone claims and we can say, well, that is either true or that is false. So if I'm saying that I'm wearing a belt, the moment that I say that, that statement is either true or false, which 
sure, is one way to measure the truth. It is a good way to measure the truth. Certainly that can't be wrong, but it is not the full way of measuring the truth, and it certainly is not the Bible's way of measuring the truth only. The truth is not just logical, it is relational. It's not just propositional, but it's personal. This is the very reason why Jesus can say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Why Paul says we are not just to speak the truth, but we are to speak the truth in love. We can pick a very good example as we kind of consider this in this famous punching bag, the Pharisees. They hold the same position of Scripture that we do. Remember that. They too would hold up the Old Testament Scriptures and say, these are indeed the Word of God. These contain truth and wisdom and knowledge, and we ought to follow what it says. They took seriously the Word of God. So let us take up the example of how their self-seeking denies the very truth that they uphold by looking at the Sabbath. We read about the Sabbath in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, where Moses writes, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. There have been many words spilled over that, many, not only Christian words spilled over that, but Jewish thoughts placed into this and understanding precisely what is the Sabbath, but let's just generally break down what the Sabbath is in its most basic sense. You are to trust the Lord your God to provide for you on that seventh day, and you are to rest. God did not need to rest on the seventh day. Why did God rest? He rested as a gift to us, so that we too might follow his pattern and rest. Six days you do labor, the seventh day you trust that the Lord God will provide for you, and you rest. And it's not like the people who are hearing this on the foot of Sinai didn't know that God would provide for him. God has just defeated unilaterally the greatest army that the earth had known. He led them on dry ground through the sea, not on muddy ground, on dry ground through the sea. Brought them up into a desert that was uninhabitable, where he then provided for them meat and water and bread, all miraculously. He was the great provider for them. So when he says, listen, I provided for you for a long time now. I provided for you daily. And I'm just telling you, one day, just trust me, one day. More than that, it's not just for you. It is for all those around you. If you have sons and daughters, if you have people who work for you, even your livestock, they are to rest as well. The Pharisees and others twisted this. It became less about relationships, either with God and with fellow men, and more about self-seeking its logical application. Is, Is putting a mat on your shoulder and taking it from dwelling to dwelling work? Is walking 10 miles work? How are we going to define what work is? Because we need to know that in order to keep the commandment, in order for us to be holy before God. How am I supposed to know how to rest if I don't know how to work? If I can't accurately define these, how do I know that I'm not going to fall into sin? 
It's not that these are necessarily wrong questions, but it's clear that they, I think, obscure the point of the command. And they force their arcane answers on the rest of the population who face challenges the vast majority of the Pharisees wouldn't have faced. Such interpretations actually made life harder on people. Rather than allowing them to rest, the Sabbath became more difficult for them. And it looked a lot more like work. All of this because the Pharisees and others are self-seeking and they forgot that the commandment was there for love. They took what is quite clearly a gracious provision, a good and kind provision of God that you should trust him and he will provide for you and made it into an unbearable burden for money. Jesus said it better. The Sabbath was made for man. It was a gift that God gave to man. The Sabbath was made to man, not man for the Sabbath. This is what self-seeking looks like. And although on the face of it, it appears righteous, it denies the truth. And therefore, it is certainly unrighteous. Therefore, Paul says, those who do such things will be the object of God's wrath and his fury. And immediately we find ourselves back at idolatry. We twist the clear meaning of words to say what they don't mean in order that we might have a God who looks and speaks like we want him to. Or we don't think he means what he says, so we make him into a liar. Or we think he's inconsistent in his recompense and his rewarding, and we deny him. But either way, no matter how you cut it, our unrighteousness in twisting the truth, in self-seeking and forgetting that these commandments are here so that we would love one another and seek out the best for one another and even loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength means that we are nothing but idolaters. And our actions show and demonstrate that we think that God is different than how he has revealed himself to be. Verses 9 to 10 go on to say much the same things with a couple of distinct notes. First, God's wrath and fury find their object. Sometimes our wrath and fury doesn't find its object. I have been beaten on by more toddlers than I care to admit, and I, I'm standing strong even today. I take it it's my good diet that has done that. But when God's wrath and fury is poured out, it always finds its object. The wrath and fury of God ends in tribulation and distress for us. But for those who do well, peace is added. Peace, like the Jewish concept of Salome, is not just this idea that you don't have warfare, but that everything in your life is just, it works well. It, your life just has a, a comfort to it, a peace to it. Things just happen the way that they ought to happen. Paul adds here two times, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. The Jews don't lose their priority, but it is somewhat refashioned. It's not simply that God has chosen favorites, but because they have received so many privileges. They've received the oracles, the prophets, the prophecies. They have received the very commandments of God and Scripture. They have increased responsibility to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Paul answers a very clear question as to why this is so in verse 11 when he says, God shows no partiality. He judges based on our works and does not respect the person. This doesn't mean that he doesn't take certain things into account. After all, we just got done saying the more privileges the Jews had, the more responsibility was going to be placed upon them. The people who had received a greater light were more responsible to respond to that light. But what it means is that God judge, judges utterly, fairly, and evenly. He never twists it to make 
friends. He never twists it to make you like him or to get your anger and rile you up. He always judges fairly and responsibly. So the question that then comes to us is quite clearly this. What does it mean that God judges us according to our works? Can we honestly say that as Christians? Not simply as Jews or not simply as Gentiles who sin, but as Christians. Does God judge us according to our works? Some look at this and say, well, Paul means this truly, but somewhat hypothetically. So that if anyone out there actually did seek out honor and glory and immortality and did so consistently throughout their life, then, then yes, God would recompense them with this eternal life. This would be his gift to them, as it were. This is possible, but honestly, I just don't think that that's likely here. I think that Paul means that you and I, friends, Christians who trust in God, are going to be judged according to our works. I think that this makes sense of what Paul says elsewhere. Pastor Richard read a great passage that points at this just this morning. In 1 Corinthians 6, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he doesn't go and through and define unrighteous as people who simply don't believe, but he defines unrighteous by people who do certain things, by the adulterers, by swindlers, revilers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous won't, implied that the righteous will, and the righteous are not people who do those things. Galatians 5.21 speaks the same way. But it's not just Paul. James speaks the same way. Your works ought to match your faith. You say that you have faith. That's great. Show me your faith. The book of Hebrews says this. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Revelation 21.8 says precisely the same kind of thing. That there are people who stand outside of the city of God who will not be allowed in. The cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion is in the lake of fire. There are certain people who do certain things that cannot be allowed in. At some level, then, you and I are judged according to what we do and not just according to what we say. doesn't matter how many prayers you have prayed. doesn't matter how many times you've seen the water stirred. It doesn't matter how much scripture you have claimed. It doesn't matter how many times you say, Lord, Lord. Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said, if your preaching of God, the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some of antinomianism, then you're not preaching the gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. What he meant by that was, if you aren't preaching that God's gift is so free that it seems like you are against the law, that you are against works, that you are against people striving to seek what is in the law. You ought to preach the grace of God so much that the charge of antinomianism can be placed upon you. It might have well been true. Especially when he lived, perhaps. I don't think that that is true that much anymore. I would rather put it this way. Because of the way that the gospel is now used as a pretext for licentiousness as much as it is for anything else. I would say that if your preaching of the gospel of God's powerful grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge from some of legalism, then you are not preaching the gospel of the powerful grace of God in Jesus Christ. You are simply proclaiming forgiveness and the freedom to sin. That is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Paul, here, and we, too, can have our cake and eat it, too. It is indeed true that no one keeps the law, so you are saved by faith through grace alone. You add nothing to it. It is wholly and totally a gift of God. In Galatians 3, Paul writes, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, Everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. And because no one can be justified by the law, it is clear that the righteous will live by faith. So it is only by faith that you are saved. But at the same time, Christians have to have a right pattern of life, a way of living that has the rightful outcome of believing the gospel. Let's remember that the pressing concern of Romans 1 and 2 is not simply a rote listing of sins, but that those sins are the flowering and the budding of idolatrous roots. And what the gospel is there to do is to replenish those roots. If you are no longer an idolater, but you serve the one true and living God, then the fruit that comes from that should not be sin, but it should be righteousness and holiness and goodness. The point, simply put, is this. Your salvation does not come from a changed life. Let that be clear and let that be true. And on that point, Lloyd-Jones is perfectly and wholly correct and standing in line with all of Scripture. Your salvation does not come from a changed life, but a changed life must come from salvation. Famously put another way, you are saved by grace alone, but saving grace is never alone. Paul, just as much as James, if not more so, sees the Spirit giving work of Jesus Christ as something that makes us alive to God, that serves both as a metaphor and the basis of truth for the kind of lives that we are to live, even while imperfectly, because of the work of Christ in us. Friends, we should not speak simply well of the grace of God without it having worked powerfully in us. As Paul might say, no longer be servants of sin, but servants of righteousness to the glory of God in Christ. God's judgment and our works, we first considered, now secondly, God's judgment and his law. There are two possible wrong reactions to thinking through the law. One from the Gentiles, one from the Jews. I have a pair of wireless headphones at home that I use fairly often when I'm doing yard work or something else. My kids love to do it, use it all the time, whether they're just listening to stories sitting around the house or because they're doing chores or whatever. And uh, because they're wireless, they need to be plugged in every once in a while. And because my kids use them so often every time, not every time, that's a stretch. Often, now that's not even true, sometimes when I go to pick them up, they're out of batteries. And I got really frustrated the other week and I looked at my youngest and I said, Lou, why don't you charge this? And she said, oh my, am I supposed to charge that? And I, was, I, I thought, I was incredulous. I was like, how do you think Bluetooth works? Like, it's not, it's not magic. And she said, oh, I didn't know how it worked. And, and I felt stupid, because why would she know how it worked? Why would she know to charge it? As my wife pointed out, she wouldn't have necessarily known that. Is this, is this the kind of reaction that the Gentiles can give? It's clear that the Gentiles have enough knowledge of God to give him honor and to treat him as the creator. But that doesn't mean that they have enough knowledge of God to live moral lives. Could they not come back and say, oh, adultery is wrong? I didn't know. I just, sorry, I didn't check the notes. I, I, no one ever told me. I, I just didn't know. 
I think Paul here is going to argue that the answer to that is clearly no. Those who don't have the law will perish without the law. They're still going to die. There is still perishing that will happen to them. But there is a Jewish response to the law that is just as wrong. Their response is that we have the law. Therefore, whatever else that might mean, it means that we have this special relationship with God and have access to His grace. This isn't, after all, that bad of an argument. It's not that bad of a a move. If we go back to the Ten Commandments, we read the opening salvo of those commandments. The Lord God, in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 2, reminds them of who He is. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. He reminds them before he gives them the law that I have redeemed you already. I have already brought you up. I have already saved you. Now do these commands. It seems like it's built into the commandments themselves and into the law, the fact that the Jewish nation has already undergone salvation. So is the law not simply a sign of their salvation? Paul says... No, it is clearly not. Verse 13 kind of sets the tone. All, in verse 12, who sinned under the law will be judged by the law because it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Simply possessing the law, having the law read in your presence, knowing that you are under the covenant of the law, does you no good if you don't keep the law. As we already read in Galatians, the law says you have to do all of the things written in the law. The possession of the law does not in any way give you grace or forgiveness. Verses 14 and 15 seek to expand on this and help us understand, but there is a difficulty that arises immediately, and that is the Gentiles that he's talking about here, are these Gentiles who aren't Christians and just happen to keep the law? So you can look around the world and you can find people who are not Christians, but they live pretty upright moral lives. Is that what Paul is talking about? Or is he talking about Christians who are Gentile? The ESV translation of verse 14 says that when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, that makes it seem like although they don't have the law, something natural in them responds to the law and they keep the law anyway. I think that this is unfortunate. And to my ears, this goes like, wholly against every single thing that Paul has written up to this point in the letter. By nature, they don't do what the law requires. By nature, they're idolaters. I think what he means is this, and the Holman Standard Bible translates it a little bit better. When Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law. So the by nature goes with not having the law. Gentiles by nature don't have the law. The law by nature has been given to Jews. Gentiles don't have it. But when they do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves. That is, they naturally lack the law, and yet certain Gentiles keep it anyway. This isn't the cultic matters of the law. It's not sacrifice. It's not circumcision, not table restrictions, but clearly the moral law. That you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And even as these folks lack the law, somehow they uphold it. And the question is, how is this possible? Given what we've read, how is that possible? Thank you, Paul, for answering our question. Verse 15, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. If this is not a direct appeal to Jeremiah 31, it is at least an incredibly loud echo. Much of the book of Jeremiah 
is a direct appeal for Judeans to pack up their things and to get ready to move to Babylon because they're going to have destruction coming upon them. God's patience with their sin has run out. He is delivering them over to the hand of the Chaldeans. They will destroy them. So Jeremiah said, the exile is coming. Pack up your things. But through the exile and through his reading of Scripture, Jeremiah sees a hope in the future. The question is, why does he see a hope? Why do the rest of the prophets see a hope? Because in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, God has foretold through Moses that the exile was going to happen. There will come a day when you will reject me wholly and fully, and I will send you away. But then the great promise in Deuteronomy 30 is that God will bring you back. And more than that, in 30 verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Jeremiah sees the curses coming upon the people that Moses wrote about in Deuteronomy 28. He knows that those curses are about to fall. And he says, if the curses are about to fall, then the promise is about to come. He lives in Deuteronomy 28, and he awaits Deuteronomy 30. Therefore, he says this in Jeremiah 31. It shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jeremiah lived before the giving of the promise, or the, the fulfillment of the promise in Deuteronomy 30. He lived through Deuteronomy 28. Paul lives in Deuteronomy 30. Paul says, this has been fulfilled. This is what's going on. When you see Gentiles carrying out the righteous requirement of the laws where the gospel is preached, you know what you're seeing. You are seeing that the, the law is written on their hearts. And notice how well that passage in Jeremiah falls in line with what Paul is saying. No longer will the people of Israel be able to stand up and say, well, we're being exiled because our forefathers were a bunch of sinners. God says, no, I will judge each one according to his works. I will pay them back for their own sin. Paul looks at this and says, they naturally keep the law. Why do they naturally keep the law? Why is this something that just comes out of them? Jeremiah says it's because it's inside them. The distinction in both Deuteronomy and in Jeremiah and in Paul elsewhere is the idea that the law is no longer an external thing. It isn't something that you do because you feel like you have to or you do for some other nefarious reason. But now, God is writing the law in your heart. It becomes part of who you are. It becomes part of the very desires of, of everything that you have. The reason why you keep the law, the reason why you uphold the law is because God has done this. It's not an external thing that you stretch for. 
It's an internal thing that becomes a natural part of who you are. Further, Paul says that their conscience bears witness as well. That the very new covenant that God has promised has come to fulfillment in them is witnessed not just by the fact that they are upholding the law, but by the fact that their conscience agrees with it. The law itself is not only being acted out in their everyday actions, but what's more, their conscience is being sort of rewired so that it falls in line with it. The NIV, I think, has a very helpful translation. Their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. That is, when they do wrong, an alarm bell goes off in their conscience, and they know that was not good. And their conscience is continually being shaped and formed by the very inside of who they are, because the law is now within them and not outside. You might say, well, that's pretty subjective. It is, until the day when God judges the secret thoughts of men. And Paul says, when he judges the secret thoughts of men, he will bring all of that to light. And your conscience will bear witness before him that this is indeed the work that you have done. You have taken sinful people and given them the Spirit, given them your law, and they desire then to follow it. All of this is according to what Paul says is my gospel. That is, while we are indeed judged according to our works, we are also judged according to the gospel. Our works, friends, are never going to be enough to justify us on our own. But they are witnesses and testimonies to the great work that Jesus has done in us. God judges us based on the gospel. That Jesus who has bled and died for us, paying our penalty for those who believe and who trust in him, in his resurrection has given us new life. That we might pursue the things of God, desiring not only the good that comes from it for ourselves, but for God's own glory and honor. You will stumble through life. You will fumble, you will fail. You will need to repent. But you will do so in such a manner that testifies to the glory of Jesus Christ because even repentance is a good work. Friends, ultimately, your works show who your God is. Is it the one true and living God of Scripture? Is it the triune God of Father, Son, and Spirit? who has provided not only a plan, but enacted that plan and applied it to us to give us greater holiness, lead us in love, that we might do good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in? Or rather, is it our own created God? We can take the text of Scripture, self-seeking, twist it so that we can live how we want to live, pursue the things that we want to pursue, never listening intently to a Scripture that warns us, that pleads with us, that pursues us, that promises us a good life when we live in the right manner. Do you follow your own created God, always excusing your sin and tailoring your life to your own desires and pursuits? Friends, one of these is a path that leads to death and destruction. The other is a path that leads to glory, honor, and peace. One leads to yourself, the other to Christ. Let us choose well this day the path that we will walk, believe and trust by faith, in the glory expressed in the face of Jesus Christ who has died for your sins and has been resurrected for your justification. Let us pray. Father, how glorious is the gospel of Jesus Christ that sinners before you might be forgiven, 
brought into your kingdom and family, given glorious new lives that seek after you. These are unfathomable gifts given to people who certainly do not deserve them. May your grace be seen clearly in our lives so that your work may rebound to your own glory. And may that very thing bring us joy, peace, comfort, and even our good. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you would...